Hi, hi, hello, guys. I'm Rui, and this is Macabre Ramblings, a true crime full ramble. So, it's another episode, and today we're going to be in episode 23. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's been such a long time, but at the same time, it feels like a journey with me just recording 23 episodes. I don't know why, but it's fun. It's kind of fulfilling, like kind of like a weekly project that I finish weekly, because it's a weekly project, and it's, it's giving me this certain satisfaction enjoy that i have an excuse to research the stuff that interests me at the same time sharing it with people who are listening to this podcast when they get released or like i don't know in the future a few even if it's like a few years after this episode is released people could still be listening to it and i could still keep sharing this stories to people i don't know it gives me this weird not weird, but it gives me this certain satisfaction that motivates me to just keep on releasing episodes. And I don't know why I'm suddenly in this mood, like kind of like a reminiscing, self-reflecting mood, but here we are. <laughs> and so now that I'm done with the self-reflecting and there's not much of a housekeeping, there's not much of a housekeeping happening. Yeah, because not much is happening with my life. It's like kind of like a routine almost so nothing much could be talked about in the housekeeping section and now let's just dive into the case that i have researched for episode 23 and as i have said it is a true crime full ramble so it's this episode is going to revolve around a crime or in this case multiple crimes of a single person in this episode, who would be the main focus? And the main focus would be this person named John Martin Scripps, uh, aka the tourist from hell, or some other articles call him the body parts killer. So body parts killer, that doesn't bode well. That's like ominous, kind of like a hint on what he does, his modus operandi. Is it modus operandi or modus operandi? Because here in the Philippines, we call it modus operandi. But I kind of have this weird feeling that it's kind of like we made it like Filipino-ish. And it's in the pronunciation, it's actually modus operandi. I'm not sure. I've heard like two different pronunciations of the phrase. And I guess I'll use both. So who is John Martin Scripps? He is born in Letchworth. Hertfordshire in December 9, 1959, to his parents, Leonard and Jean Scripps. And Leonard is a lorry driver, and Jean Scripps is a street barmaid. So, kind of like uh, humble. Yeah, some humble jobs. Humble, proper jobs. So, John, while growing up, he is not a very strong student, so he's not strong academically. 
And he spent a lot of time keeping his father company. And so he and Leonard, his father, were very close. They traveled all over England. And because of this, they kind of lived a detached and isolated life. And so in his childhood, he already traveled very often. But when John was only nine years old, his mother, who was working as a barmaid, a bartender, suddenly left his father for another man. And Leonard, not being able to cope with the kind of like breakdown of his marriage, ended up taking his own life by gassing himself in the oven at their home. Ugh, we're starting off very bleak, guys. We're starting off very bleak. And it gets even bleaker because John discovered his father's body. And needless to say, this is a very traumatizing experience for him. And it caused him kind of like a permanent emotional damage, which, like, that's what you would expect. He is very close with his father, and then he just sees him dead. Just one day, he's dead, and now he doesn't know what to do. John had an elder sister named Janet. <coughs> yes? <coughs> yes? Uh-huh. Ah, baby. So, oh yeah, John has, a, has an elder sister named Janet, but I don't know if they're close or not because she wasn't really uh, talked about a lot in this who case. She's just there. And now that his father is dead, there's nobody like really looking after him in such a parental way, I think. And so he ended up leaving school when he was 15 because he not only lost kind of like both his parents but he also has dyslexia so he's having troubles with reading a lot and that made him feel like he should just leave school because he's not a very academically competent student in the first place and so he did and uh, as i have said his father's dead and what happens to like children usually what happens to children that undergoes this much like emotional baggage they become very very troubled and at 14 years old he went to a cadet training camp in france but then he ran away from it this was a big deal because he was underaged in a foreign country and no one really had any idea where he had gone but john was used to the road because he kept he kept on traveling a lot when he was like smaller kidder because <laughs> he's still 14 he's still a kid at this point and he made his way back to England. So now that he has left school and he doesn't really have any proper path in life that he had thought about, he moved to the Isle of Wight where his mother ran a guest house. And so he could earn some money. He continued to travel and to get some money for this traveling, traveling expenses, he raised money by doing odd jobs and selling antiques. And this is when, not long after, he was convicted of his first crime in May 1974. And this is when he was sentenced to a 12-month 12 12-month 12 conditional discharge and he was fined 10 pounds by Highgate Juvenile Court for burglary. So petty burglary, petty thievery. This punishment did not stop him from his, like crimes and by august 1976 two years afterwards he had stolen again three times in june 1978 two days after that as well he was fined 40 pounds for indecent assault so 
while he was doing this crime life, petty crime life that he has been suddenly uh, dipping his hand into, he was still traveling a lot. And while traveling in Mexico, Scripps met, met Maria Pilar Aurelianos and he ended up marrying her in 1980. They traveled together for two years until 1982 because he was sentenced to a three-year jail term for theft, burglary, and resisting arrest. His imprisonment upset Maria, of course. Your husband is suddenly in prison because he could not keep his hands to himself. <laughs> he just wants to grab stuff. And the relationship was going downhill at that point. And it even went downhill even further because he ran away from jail during home leave in June 1985. And this is just, just months short before completing his term. And then not only did he run away from jail, he ended up stealing things again. And so he was sentenced to another three years imprisonment. During this time, Maria ended up divorcing him and married another person, another, another man. And this man is an officer, so a complete opposite of him. And this is police constable Ken Cold, an officer in the Royal Protection Squad. This made Scripps angry, and in revenge, he stole some of Cold's clothing while he was released on home leave. So, instead of like behaving in home leaves, he uses this time either to escape or to do even more burglary. And so he stole Cold's clothing, and he was kind of like calmed down in a way when Maria divorced Cold and then returned to her hometown and she did not come back to him but he was like I guess satisfied at the fact that nobody else has her kind of way like he doesn't have her but Cold doesn't have her either and he's like fine with that after he was released his three-year sentence is done Scripps legally changed his name to John Martin so he dropped the Scripps and just went about his life as John Martin and not John Martin Scripps. So you'd think that, no, actually no, because he doesn't have like a proper education and he always like dipped his hands into crime, thievery and all that stuff. And so he ended up escalating and he began trafficking in drugs and he ended up carrying heroin between Asia and Europe for a syndicate. So Singapore authorities heard of his name in 1987 because this is when he was arrested at Heathrow Airport for possessing drugs. Police found a key on him that belonged to a safe deposit box in a bank in Orchard Road, Singapore. From which there, officers from Singapore's Central Narcotics Bureau seized 1.5 kilograms or 3.3 pounds of heroin worth around one million dollars and so of course this means that he's going to be in jail once again and he has another drug offense before this and so southwark crown court in january 1988 sentenced him to seven years in jail and what do you know he got another home leave and what does he do in home leaves what does he usually ended up ended up doing in home leaves he escaped. <laughs> he used this time to escape, but he was rearrested later. 
In July 1992, the Winchester Crown Court added another six years to his original sentence. Now he has 13 years to serve, which would have kept him behind bars until 2001. But he ended up escaping again. Like, he either is like a sl slithery motherfucker or the security isn't that good. I don't know. How, how does he escape over and over again? I mean, he goes on home leave, but... He has now like a track record of uh, running away, <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe he's just very slithery, slippery, he's very sly, he knows how to sneak around and escape. <clears throat> so he was in custody at Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight from February 1992 to August 1993 and this is where he became a model prisoner. Initially he did just these like chores simple chores such as dishwashing general cleaning but because he was a model prisoner he was promoted to the position of a butcher and what is his moniker the body parts murderer not good right the correlation it it's not good there's like a bad omen <laughs> with this and so he got promoted to a a position of butcher under the training of james quigley and he is a prison caterer with more than 20 years of experience and he is also under the training of another inmate only identified as ginger who had been a professional butcher so the both of them taught john martin to dismember how to dismember and remove the bones from animals after slaughtering them martin performed his duties with such efficiency he was really good at it like he found his calling that he once told Quigley that after he was released, he's going to open up a butcher's shop. So kind of like a promising prospect. Like he got he gets released and maybe he goes with the straight and narrow path and just ended up opening a butcher's shop and living his life the proper not going to break the laws way. So on 20th of August 1993. Martin was transferred from Albany Prison to the Mount Prison in Hemel Hempstead, 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 Hemel Hempstead, Hertfordshire, because his security categorization was changed. I can only assume that he, his security got lowered, which is like not a good idea because in October 1994, on home leave. Yep, he's given another home leave, and guess what he did once again? He escaped. Ha 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 ha. And his mother, learning about his escape, noted that he had sold all his belongings to fellow inmates while in prison. This is like a clear like evidence that he's going to escape. And his mother, learning all of this, asked the prison authorities not to release his son her son because she knows that he is going to end up uh what is this called but he given the opportunity to just step outside he's going to run away all the time every time so she just asked the prison authorities not to release her son but the home office did not like you know take this seriously they did not heed her advice so they just gave scripts like even more home leaves <laughs> and his mother, knowing that Scripps is already out now, she cannot do anything, and Scripps is still her son, 
she gave him 200 pounds to go overseas so he could like avoid recapture and to avoid this to avoid being captured again he used the birth certificate of another inmate named simon james davis so he could get a passport using this name so within a month of his escape he is in mexico as john martin because he reported to the british embassy there that he had lost his passport and so he managed to get a replacement with his proper name this time so john traveled to mexico and he went there because he's going to search for his ex-wife, Maria Pilar. When Maria saw him, she was not happy. <laughs> she was not happy at all. But he promised her that he had changed and that he had found religion in prison, of course. And he was serious about changing his ways. He then devoted himself to the Virgin of Guadalupe, who is Mexico's patron saint. Maria at this point was actually still in love with him but she did not want to risk like getting into a relationship with him again because she knows his tendencies and she did not, she did not want to get like tangled in that again but she did still take him in and they lived together for a while he told her then that he found a job importing silk from Thailand but she did not believe him she thinks that he's still doing something like illegal she knew him too well but also felt that she did not want to know what he was really up to. So she let him live with her, but she does really not want to get involved with anything that he's doing in his life. And so he just, she just allowed him to do whatever he wants. So John Martin ha hung out a lot in bars and he just struck up conversations with travelers because he's friendly. He's actually easy to talk to. As I've heard like in documentaries, he's a friendly, friendly person. And so... He's approachable and so it's easy for him to just strike conversations with strangers. So one day he met a British backpacker called Timothy McDowell and he met John in Cancun. Timothy was an economics graduate from Cambridge University and then the two became friends and they went out partying together. They also traveled together for a while so they became very close. So while in Belize in January 1995, the friends took scuba diving lessons. and But after that, Timothy was never seen again. Yep, was never seen again. Later, uh, in crocodile-infested water, ugh, some badly mutilated body parts were seen. But these body parts could not conclusively be matched to the missing man. So... There's not enough evidence to say that the mutilated body parts are of Timothy McDowell's. And so nobody could really like correlate this with John Martin at this point. And so if he did do this, he got away with it. So Maria remembered that when John returned from Belize, when she, I guess, learned, heard about what happened to Timothy McDowell and his disappearance, she remembered that when John returned from Belize, where they went scuba diving he had changed his whole demeanor demeanor was different and she knew immediately or kind of like she had a hunch that he had done something but she did not want to think about it so she just really wants to hands off like not going to deal with anything that this guy does soon after this john left mexico for san francisco Maria would never see him again, which I think is like a relief for her because <laughs> he's not going to stress her out anymore. So from San Francisco, John boarded the plane to Singapore. 
possibly to look for work as a drug mule or just someone who imports exports drugs and travel all over the world to give drugs to people so on 8th of march 1995 martin arrived in singapore from san francisco from, from san francisco at about 2 a.m singapore time and so now we go to the actual like crime i know i talked about timothy mcdowell but that's like a disappearance that could be related to john martin but nobody really knows like for sure if it is so now let's go to the crimes that are really for sure attributed to him and this is when he immediately when he landed on singapore because when he landed on singapore he met gerard george lowe and he came from johannesburg johannesburg south africa he was a chemical engineer with south african breweries he went to singapore to shop for just electrical electronic goods just some cheap gadgets anything that could help with his uh i guess job so before he left johannesburg on 7th of march 1995 he told his wife vanessa his exact schedule so he sh he showed her what he would do and he even said that quote i will call you the moment i check into the hotel to give you the contact number if you do not if you do not hear from me on 10th of march it would mean that i would have a seat on the plane to return to south africa and would arrive home on 11th of march but if i do call you on 10th of march that would mean that i have not managed to get a seat and would return on 12th of march so he really really gave her like his proper schedule which is like something that you should do if you're going to leave for a place like alone you should like give your exact proper schedule to somebody that you could trust and you know that would wait for you and like be mindful and looking at your schedule and making sure you're okay so lo arrived at singapore airport on the morning of 8th of march and this is when he was approached by martin and under this time he was not using his real name he was using the name of simon davis and they had a conversation and the suggestion that they would share a room came up and because john martin was or simon davis at this point in time was very friendly was easy to talk to and low was like friendly as well he did not feel like any bad intentions from john martin at this point he agreed and so they booked a room 1511 in the riverview hotel of havelock road and the next morning martin went down to the hotel receptionist and he asked the receptionist to delete lowe's name from the room registration system and he made an excuse that he kicked lowe out the previous night because george lowe was apparently a homosexual yep and the receptionist just went with it she's like okay and so she deleted Lowe's name in the registration. But at this time, Lowe was actually still in the room. But he was not, like, cool anymore. He was in a couple of suitcases, cut into 10 pieces. And he's just there. Because a few hours after they checked into the hotel the previous night, scripts hit Lowe's head with a mallet probably after he had used a stun gun he had he has a 40,000 volt stun gun with him and you'd see that this is these are the things that he would use in his crimes so after stunning 
blow, he crushed his head with a mallet, and then he dismembered his corpse in the bathroom using the method that he had learned from jail, the butcher method. And he used the method he traditionally employed to cut jo George Lowe's body into 10 sections. Then, he took Lowe's passport, he removed Lowe's photo from it and replaced it with his own. Simon Davis, or John Martin, now had a South African passport showing that he was Gerard Lowe. So he's forging the passports. After that, records show that Scripps went on a shopping spree. So he used Lowe's credit cards to withdraw $8,775 in cash. And he then bought a $499 video cassette recorder. He used the same credit card to buy hi-fi stereo speakers and running shoes on the 9th of March. On the 10th of March, he also attended a Singapore Symphony Orchestra performance. So he's just using his, uh, he's just using Lowe's credit card willy-nilly at this point so on 11th of march 1995 which is like two days after the murder the security guards observed martin walking out of the hotel around 6 35 a.m with a heavy suitcase about 15 minutes later he returned but the suitcase is not with him he then checked out of the hotel and left for bangkok so he's now suddenly now so he's now out of the singapore he's going to bangkok thailand and on, 13th, on the 13th of March, 1995, two days after his flight out of Singapore, the people from Clifford Pier in Singapore found a pair of legs severed at the knees in a plastic bag floating off the pier. Three days later, they find a pair of thighs and a torso in the same area, also in a plastic bag. Initially, the Singapore police could not determine who this is because he's in pieces and there's no head, there's no arms, just different sections of his body. But they know that he it, that the parts of the body belong to a Caucasian. At first, the investigators thought that this is like a drowned illegal Im immigrant who had fallen overboard from a vessel that was very overcrowded. Why the body parts are in plastic and just cut into pieces i don't know but on closer inspection they realized that this was not the case at all because the legs were removed from the rest of the body and it showed that whoever had done this had extensive experience he's very experienced in removing this in removing limbs there was no damage to the knee or surrounding areas and the ligaments and the ligaments had been neatly cut it was like Obviously, the work of someone with a lot of knowledge ab about anatomy. Either a doctor, a surgeon, a veterinarian, or, you know, a butcher. So, the medical examiners de determined that the victim had died about two days before the bag was discovered. But without the rest of the victim's body, the Singapore police had a hard job to find out who the victim really is. And as I have said, the thing that they only know was that the legs and the other parts of the body belong to a Caucasian male. So now at the first task of the police was to look at missing persons reports and then a report caught their attention because in this report, a wife in South Africa reported that her husband is missing. Her 32-year-old husband has been missing and now they kind of like zeroed in on it 
because it's very probable and now they had a possible name that this body parts that have been floating around in the pier is of someone named George Lowe from the South African High Commission. So Vanessa Lowe, because she knows her husband's schedule, filed a report because she was distressed that George did not make contact with his family when overseas because he usually contacts them daily every day to make sure to check up on to check up on in them and she was distressed when he did not he did not call home and he did not return to south africa by the 12th of march so Lowe's colleagues at work also tried to search for him through personal contacts in singapore and on the 1st of april she confirmed that the body parts were her husband's through visual identification however unfortunately his arms and head were never found. So now the police definitely suspected that the that the victim was South African Gerard Lowe and they traced his movements after his arrival at the airport. They were then able to know that he had checked into Riverview Hotel with a man called Simon Davis. So the when the police went into room 1511, housekeeping had not been in to clean yet. So that's very fortunate and because that also meant that the crime scene is still preserved. So the room when the police looked into it was in this array and there's this smell of decay and death lingering around in the room and then they searched the room. They could not see any blood. But around the room, the room, the bedroom, I guess, with the bed and the other furnitures in it, they could not see a speck of blood. But when they looked into the bathroom, in the toilet bowl, they found splashes of blood. So the blood that they found in the toilet bowl matched with the legs found in the water. So they were go- getting closer to it, to making sure that this is G- George Lowe. And so they asked for blood samples from Gerard's, George's sister. And this was sent straight away and arrived in Singapore the next day. And unfortunately, this was a match. And now there's a homicide investigation starting. Two weeks later, Vanessa Lowe arrived in Singapore to claim her husband's remains and assist police with the investigation. She had never heard of the man called Simon Davis. And she had no idea how Simon Davis knew her husband. Singapore police also reached out to Scotland Yard to help them locate South African-born British citizen Simon Davis. So, between investigators in Britain and Singapore, they were able to link the pieces together. And so, they uncovered that Simon Davis is in fact John Martin Scripps. Because John, John had applied for a British passport in the British High Commission, you know, and he said that he lost his passport So there's like a file about that. And so they realize that this is not Simon Davis. This is John Martin. But at this point in time, John Martin isn't in Singapore anymore. He had flown into Thailand. So in the hotel's phone records, let's go back to the Riverview Hotel for a bit. In the hotel's phone records, police saw that John had called Thomas Cook. This and he is in the Foreign Exchange Service in Robinson Road in Singapore. Staff at Thomas Cook confirmed that uh, the man that they were looking for, John, had transferred a large amount of money to his account in the US. Because the transfer would take around a couple of days to complete, John said that he would go to Thailand and then return to Singapore when everything was all done. 
He then purchased a ticket to Bangkok from the Thomas Cook travel agency at the same premises. So now the Singapore police contacted the Thai police and they confirmed that yes, a Simon Davis had arrived in the country but they did not know where he is. So the police in the in Singapore had no choice but to wait for his return, hoping that he won't like flee and come back to Singapore as he said to the travel agency. Meanwhile, the media heard all about this and they were and you know how media works, they were very eager to just throw the story out. But the police pleaded with them to keep things under wraps as long as possible because when John hears about this, he might run away. He might go and flee because he got the money that he wanted and now he has the means to go flying everywhere and they were afraid that he would see the news and then decide not to return to Singapore. The press, fortunately, heeded this advice and so they did not release any articles about it at the meantime. So while waiting for John Martin to go back to Singapore, he is now in Thailand. And unfortunately, in Thailand, he met two Canadian people, the mother and son Sheila May Damood and her son Darin John Damood. And they came from British Columbia, Canada. Uh, Sheila is an administrator at the Pacific Christian School in Victoria, while Darin was a college student. They had come to Thailand on a holiday, with Darin flying to Asia first before Sheila met him in Bangkok during spring break. They flew to Phuket on 15th of March with Martin, John Martin Scripps, still using his assumed name, so Simon Davis. And they were sitting in the same row, and so they ended up talking. He befriended the two of them, and then they checked into Nilis Marina Inn, facing Patong Beach. They did not room at the same room this time, but they were in adjacent rooms. Martin was given room 48, and the Damoods were given the adjacent room 43. The next morning, <sighs> Martin asked the inn's receptionist, to switch his room to room 43, the room of the Damoods, and he said that the Damoods had left and that he instead would pay their bill. He hung a do not disturb notice on the hotel bedroom door so he would not be disturbed, and you guessed it. The Damoods are already dead. It's presu- he presumably used his same like methods, hitting them with a stun gun and then smashing their heads with the mallet and then cutting up their bodies. So after all of that shebang, that gory gory, just absolutely evil uh, events happening, Martin checked out on the 19th of March and he was going to fly back to Singapore. On that day, in a disused tin mine in Kathu district, a pair of skulls were discovered, and also a torso and a pair each of arms and legs were found along Ban Nai Trang Road, which is 9.7 kilometers away, five days later. The body parts were so badly decomposed that visual identification was impossible, and so the Royal Thai Police used dental records to identify the skulls and forensic analysis concluded that the torso, arms, and legs were likely to be Sheila's, but unfortunately, the other parts of Darin's body were never found. So the Thai police were able to trace his movements after the murders. 
One of the hotel's receptionists remembered John leaving the hotel with bags and driving off on a rented motorcycle. After that, the Canadians were never seen again. And so, before we go to <clears throat> Martin's uh, return to Singapore, let's go to some unconfirmed victims. Because there's like vic- people that disappeared that is linked to him in a way. He is a suspect, but nobody really knows for sure if he done them. And the first one is, I already talked about, it's Timothy McDowell. Police still could not conclusively match Timothy McDowell to the body found in the crocodile-infested waters, as I have said. And, but there's this suspicious activity that made them link John Martin a lot to his case, except for the fact that they went scuba diving and then Timothy disappeared. Aside from that, they found that there's a transfer of £21,000 from McDowell's bank account to an account in San Francisco under Martin's name. So McDowell is believed to have been murdered while sleeping and his remains were thrown into the crocodile-infested river. Martin refused to be interviewed by Scotland Yard when he was in prison. When he was arrested in Singapore, he was asked to be interviewed but he refused it refused it and so nobody still knows if McDowell was killed by him but it was very much thought about that he was the one who did all of it personally i believe that he might have been the one to do it because the amount of circumstantial evidence is a lot <laughs> and we know what, how capable John Martin is when it comes to murder so aside from What's his name? Aside from Timothy McDowell, there's also another person that has been attributed to John Martin but isn't really uh, confirmed that he was the one who murdered the person. And this person lived in San Francisco in the United States and he is a sex worker named Tom Wenger. So on 28th of March 1994, uh, Wenger's body was chopped up so kind of like the same as his modus operandi and drained of blood it was then found in a dumpster in myrtle alley in the polk street district so there's a facial composite picture of a suspect made by the san francisco police and it kind of looks like john martin but uh he ended up being formally eliminated as a suspect because it was established that instead of being in san francisco at that time when Tom Wenger died, he was John Martin was actually in a British halfway house at the time of the murder. So he was kind of like eliminated as a suspect. He was not the one who did the murder. It just so happens that it kind of like has a lot of coincidences, I guess, when it comes to the evidence and the way of the disposal of the body. But apparently some other uh investigation happened and it looked like in that time of Tom Wenger's death, it was kind of hard to follow John Martin's movements precisely. It was complicated because he was in the English halfway house a lot at that time. Uh, but he was allowed to leave the house frequently. And he often disappeared for a week or two before he returns to this halfway house. So that's about it with that. So it could have been that he went out for like a week or two flew to san francisco killed somebody there and then went back but of course it's still not confirmed nobody could really tie him like for sure down to that murder but he is consist 
once again considered a suspect for that. And he is also linked to three other murder cases involving four victims, including cases in Singapore, Thailand, and Mexico. There's, there could be also evidence linking scripts to an Arizona case, but that's about it with that. It was not like elaborated which murders there are, but there's quite a lot that has been like linked to him but not properly confirmed. So as of the moment, the ones who are properly like confirmed to be his crimes are the ones of the, the Canadian mother and son and George Lowe. His modus operandi, as I have said like a couple of times, but this is really how he does it. He was going to pose as a tourist and converse with randomly chosen Caucasian people while they were either on their flights or while waiting at airports. He then would end up staying at the same hotel as these uh, potential victims or a room near theirs. He would get an excuse to be inside the rooms and then he would use his stun gun is the electroshock weapon to immobilize them before killing them by hitting their heads with the hammer that he had brought and when they were dead he cut them up in their bathrooms he apparently chose Caucasians as his victims because they were either vacationing there in like a business job or something and they were far away from where they live which made them likely to be uh, which made him less likely to be discovered his motive is kind of like focused on money because like in george lowe's case and uh, timothy mokodawa's and even the uh, mother-son duo he always ends up withdrawing a lot a large amount of money to use or just like have it in his possession and so it would usually it looks like he kills because of money and kind of like nothing more else because there's no sexual assault assault at all he just kills them uh cuts them up and then throws them away to get their money so now let's go back to john martin's arrival to singapore and so he arrived at the airport on the evening of 19th of march 1995 and he used he still uses his passport with the name Simon Davis. Police had already put his name on the wanted list on the 14th of March after they learned that George Lowe had checked into Riverview Hotel with someone by the name Simon Davis. So he got caught, he got arrested, and he was brought into the police interview room in the airport. And inside this interview room, he was like desperate because he have he has learned of someone called Flor Contemplacion, which is a Filipino who had been hanged in Singapore two days before for a double murder. And he doesn't want that to happen to him. And so he smashed a glass panel and he attempted suicide with the shard of glass that was from that broken glass panel but he did not manage to do that he failed and he was taken to alexandra hospital for treatment so looking at his possessions at his arrival at the singapore airport the police found five passports on martin in addition to his own there are two british passports to simon davis there are two Canadian passports issued to Sheila and Darin Danud, and a South African passport issued to Gerard Lowe. Each of these passports has John Martin's photograph on it, so he forged them, he tampered with them. They also found Sheila Danud's and Gerard Lowe's credit cards with him. 
In addition, police found Simon Davis's birth certificate and items that Martin had probably used to immobilize and kill the people, the victims. There's a hammer weighing 1.5 kilograms. There's a battery-operated Z-Force 3 electroshock weapon, so the stun gun. There's a mace, two pairs of handcuffs, a pair of thumb cuffs, two police brand foldable knives, an oil stone, and two Swiss army knives. Today, of course, uh, if you have experience going to the airport and flying in a plane, you'd know that these things are not legal <laughs> to fly with in an airplane <clears throat> but things were different back then in the 1995s 1994s passengers apparently back then were permitted to travel with blades up to four inches long and this was before 9-11 so the security measures haven't like completely tightened up <clears throat> so confronted with all of this evidence all of his possessions john remained silent he did not speak and he did not even answer who he is so when he was asked to identify himself he did not say anything he did not confirm nor did he not he deny anything he just kept his mouth shut he just kept silent all the time so police needed more time because they could not get evidence from him they could not get a phrase or something like a confession from him and they needed more time to get all of these so to be able to keep him like in custody or like in jail uh, they charged him with forgery because of gerard lowe's passport so this bought them only one week's time though and this is a very short time to build a murder case after a week if they haven't like built a case a proper case against him they would have had to release him so on 21th of march 1995 martin was taken to court on an initial charge and his name in this court charge is Simon James Davis. And he's accused of forging Jared Lowe's signature on a DBS bank credit card transaction slip to obtain $6,000 in cash on the 9th of March. Three days later, he was charged under his real name for the murder of Jared Lowe in a Riverview hotel room. In subsequent hearings, he was additionally charged with more forgery because he forged George Lowe's signature five more times to obtain cash and goods worth $3,200. Uh, he was also uh, charged of vandalism when he smashed the glass panel in the airport, possession of an offensive weapon, the stun gun, possession of a controlled drug because he had 24 sticks of cannabis at the time of his arrest, so at this time, the law enforcement agencies in both Thailand and Singapore felt that the murders of Gerard Lowe and the Demudes were committed by the same person, John Martin, aka Simon Davis. So the prosecution used the evidence from Thailand to strengthen John Martin's case, and now they were able to charge him with murder. So while in the police custody, while in like remand in jail, John Martin went on a hunger strike. So when his appointed attorney visited him, he was emaciated, he didn't look good at all. He cried and said that he wanted to see his mother. Haha, <laughs> mother's boy. So it's kind of like a very weird gap because on one side he is a cold-blooded murderer and on the other hand he was like crying for his mother and he was like, this article said he was like semi-literate because I guess he did not finish his education 
and I don't think he actually treated his education like seriously. <clears throat> so now charged with murder, on September 18th, there is a preliminary inquiry in the district court and this was held to determine whether there was sufficient evidence for a trial to happen. So the magistrate overseeing, overseeing the inquiry ordered Martin to stand trial for Gerard Lowe's murder on the 2nd of October after they heard statements from 39 witnesses and looking at more than 100 exhibits and 100 photographs that the prosecution had prepared as evidence. So now, the trial was going to happen. And before the trial, Martin explained himself in a way, and it was like a weird excuse for murder. So Martin made a statement explaining that he did kill Gerard Lowe, but this is not for his money. He killed him because of self-defense. So they were rooming together. He said that he had fallen asleep after they checked in. But then he woke up because he felt like someone was touching his buttocks. Like, why is there someone touching his ass? So he woke up and he found that he, it was Jared Lowe who was doing that, this to him. And Jared Lowe was only apparently wearing his underwear and smiling at him like a creep. To John Martin, this behavior made Lowe appear to be a homosexual, so he kicked Jared Lowe away. So this apparent rejection angered Jared Lowe, and for some reason, he Jared Lowe managed to grab John Martin's hammer. Okay, so he got John Martin's hammer, and then he threw this hammer at John Martin's stomach. Martin then was not incapacitated by this because Ow, if a hammer just hits you after someone throws it to you, that would have hurt, especially if it's in the stomach like bra. Uh, but apparently, Martin then grabbed the hammer and he used this hammer to hit Jared Lowe several times on the head until he collapsed on the floor. And then he manages, John Martin manages to contact a friend that would later help him dispose of George Lowe's body by throwing it into the river. Martin then continued, quote, I am not sure what was the next thing I did. Everything was such a blur to me after this incident that I was walking around in a, in a dream world for the next few days. And he actually when asked about the ident identity of the friend that helped him dispose of the body he refused saying quote i cannot tell you his identity because if he knew he would harm my family back in britain end quote so he also said that on the 15th of march he flew to phuket thailand so that he's saying that that's why he flew to thailand where he would meet his friend again his friend then gave him the passport and other items belonging to the Damoods, whom he never met. So that's his excuse for having the Damoods possessions, his, their passports, their credit card with him when he went back to Singapore. Because apparently his friend that just helped him uh, throw the, a dead body into the river gave him passports and credit cards of two dead people. <laughs> so... I don't know what the heck, but apparently that's how it happened. <clears throat> Scripps, uh, John Martin then denied cutting up the body, saying that the one who has helped him dispose of the body, who he uh, identifies as Big John, so kind of like a moniker, 
the gang leader, which is kind of weird because his name is John Martin and he's using this Big John thing. So he said that the one who helped him is someone who goes by the moniker Big John and he is the one who ended up cutting the dead body. And he is also a gang leader. And also Big John was the one to dispose of the Canadian mother's and son's bodies because apparently he was the one who murdered them and not John Martin. So the trial began with John Martin entering a no plea, which uh, under Singapore law means he was contesting the charges because Singapore does not have any jury trials. So on Tuesday, on the third, on the third, which is a Tuesday, there's uh, James Quigley, the one who uh, taught John Martin the butcher skills thing from Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight, testified, and he told the court that yes. He did teach John Martin how to dismember and bone slaughtered animals. Quigley said, quote, He was instructed in butchery over a six-week period in March and April 1993. He was trained to bone out four quarters and hind quarters of beef, sides of bacon, carcasses of pork, and how to portion chicken. End quote. And he also testified that yes, John Martin was a quick learner when it comes to the butchery skills. So in court, John Martin argued that he was not a violent person. He said that he may have worked in prison. He, wa- he, ma- he may have been taught the butchery. But cutting up a human body is another thing. John Martin said that when he saw the photographs of George Lowe's body parts, it made him feel sick. He also mentioned that he had killed Lowe because of these homosexual advances that caused him to quote-unquote freak out because he had previously fended off homosexual attacks while he was in prison. Uh, the first one is in Israel in 1978 and in England in 1994. So acting for the prosecution in the trial were Jennifer Marie, Noral Huda, and Tohan Lee. They said that Martin had a reputation of befriending tourists, killing them, and then dismembering their corpses. He robs them of their wallets, credit cards, credit cards, cash, and passports. And they also said that this is like possible. The dismembering is possible because Martin had skill as a prison butcher, and Lowe's body showed signs of being dismembered professionally. So, uh, Jared. Jared's widowed wife, Vanessa, she's such a poor woman, <laughs> testified that Jared was definitely not gay. And actually, uh, Eve, uh, there's this documentary that said that she even uh, went as far to say that Jared was actually homophobic in such a way that Vanessa said that if Jared found out, like, for example, they have a son and the son turned out to be gay, he would disown them. So, she did say that. And also, forensic evidence also proved that John Martin's story was not true because there was no blood on the carpet or on the bed in room 1511. So, if he did smash uh, Jared Lowe's head and then he fell under the carpet, there would have been a lot of like blood in the carpet. John didn't, and it meant that John did not hit Gerard with the hammer. Instead, evidence showed that Gerard was tasered and taken to the bathroom where he was then murdered and dismembered. So when the prosecutors asked John Martin what he did after killing Lowe, he said that he could not remember anything because he had drunk heavily and consumed Valium after Lowe's death 
until he was arrested. He then said that he no, he did not kill the Demudes, and that he had come back to Singapore from Phuket to clear his conscience about Gerard Lowe's death. So then, uh, someone named Chow Tsi Chang, and he is a government pathologist, testified that the manner in which Gerard Lowe's body was cut up indicated that only people who really knows anatomy could have done it, like only a doctor, a veterinarian, or a butcher could have dismembered it. And then Chow told the police that, quote, look, you were dealing with a serial killer, end quote. So at the time of the trial, security was heavy throughout, and John Martin was sitting between two uniformed armed police officers in a glass and metal cage, and his legs are bound in irons, I guess, like handcuffs, but for feet. Wow, the security is like immense. So on the fourth day of the trial, prosecutor Jennifer Marie said that John Martin had practiced forging Gerard Lowe's signature, suggesting that the killing was indeed premeditated. She showed to court the items that were taken from John Martin's luggage, including a notebook and tracing paper filled with practice signatures of Gerard Lowe's name. Uh, Marie also produced credit cards, passports, and all of the documents that he tampered with. So, the defense lawyer Edmund Pereira questioned the two police officers, trying to show that when they conducted the search for blood traces in the hotel room bed, they did not do a good job. So, they were just trying to tarnish the uh, work of the people who did the investigation. The police witnesses said there were no traces of blood. They said it again, only in the bathroom. But the defense lawyer implied that if the police found no blood traces on the carpet, it could have been because they did not conduct enough tests and not in the exact spot where Gerard Lowe fell. John Martin said that when asked about the concert ticket, he said that he did, he did not remember buying it and that he did not attend the performance. He told the court that he went drinking with a British friend that night. So when he was asked about, when the prosecution asked him about what happened between March 8th and March 11th, Scripps said that he doesn't have any memory. He even, <laughs> this is funny, he used the excuse, quote, You've got a good memory, I haven't. I'm dyslexic, I get things mixed up, end quote. So, I don't know if that passes. The, wait, if, or maybe I'm just like, a dumb, stupid, uneducated, but isn't dyslexic more on in the words? Like, you mix up the letters and stuff? Does it also have to do with memory? I don't know, but I just know that it's about like reading and, and the letters, like written ones. I don't know. Oh, uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm, in a, in a, I'm not that educated in the matter. So on June, uh, so on November 7th, Judge T.S. Sinathere adjourned the trial for three days so he could think about his verdict because, as I've said, there are no jury trials in Singapore, so the judge is kind of like the only person who's going to think about what to give us a punishment. So John Martin was said to have been laughing and joking with his guards minutes before the verdict when he was going to give a sentence. He, John Martin even said, quote, karma is karma, it's in God's hands now, end quote. So when the trial resumed, the judge was satisfied that the prosecution had made its case well and he, 
uh, the, the judge does not believe in Martin's version of events. He then found Martin guilty and sentenced him to death. In his verdict, Justice Sinathari said, quote, I'm satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Martin had intentionally killed Lowe. After that, he disarticulated Lowe's body into separate parts, and it was he who had subsequently disposed of the body parts by throwing them into the river behind the hotel. On the evidence, I had no difficulty to find that it was Martin who was concerned with the deaths of Sheila and Darin and for the disposal of their body parts found in different sites in Phuket. The disarticulation of the body parts of Lo, Sheila, and Darin have the hallmark signs of having been done by the same person. Altogether, this similar fact evidence reinforces the decision I have made, for it puts beyond doubt that Martin is guilty on the charge of murder. The sentence of this court upon you is that you will be taken from this place to a lawful prison and taken to a place to be hanged by the neck until you are dead. I may the Lord have mercy on your soul. End quote. So while I was doing this notes, uh, some some like thoughts entered my mind, and it's more of like the realization, like if there's no jury trial, the judge is the only one who like things about it or maybe he would like ask some people that are close to him but ultimately he's the one who like decides what to do it's quite something there's quite something heavy about the fact that you decide if a person dies or not i don't know that just came to my mind it's just like a pretty heavy responsibility so uh now let's go back to the verdict and i have seen like two versions in articles First, that John Martin showed no emotion as the verdict was read. And there's another one that said that he cried as he said this statement. Quote, I know it looks like I've murdered everybody whose credit card was found on me, but I'm not a violent man. End quote. So, maybe he did, I don't know, maybe he did both. So, his mother and sister apparently attended the trial's early days, but they did not go to court to hear the verdict. So John Martin's mother, Jean Scripps, who is 58 at the time, uh, said, quote, I brought John into this world. I am the only person who has the right to take him out of it. I cannot believe how my, I cannot believe how my boy could have changed from a kind human being into the monster described in court. Unquote. So she's kind of like angry. She does not believe that somebody else could have the right to sentence her son to death but it's like yeah it's a sentence given to him because he killed people so unfortunately although the evidence from the demud's crime in thailand was essential to doing to like securing conviction for john martin john martin was actually never charged with the murders of sheila and darin but this kind of like conclusion to the trial uh kind of like made it that the Thai and Canadian police were able to close the case on the deaths of the mother and son. So now that John Martin is sentenced to death, he was the first Briton since Singapore's independence from Britain and Malaysia to be given the death penalty. He is also one of the first Westerners to be executed in Singapore since independence. And the first one is Johannes or Johan van Dam of the Netherlands in 1994. Now that John Martin is sentenced to death, he could be he could appeal against it. And so on 15th of November 1995, Martin announced that he would appeal against the sentence. So his lawyers starts to uh, prepare for the appeal. 
in a hope to change his sentence to life imprisonment. However, on Jan January 4th, John Martin sent a handwritten letter asking the court to withdraw the appeal and he did not give an explanation at all and apparently in January 4, this is only 4 days before the appeal was to have been heard. So suddenly he drops the appeal, suddenly he accepts that he's going to be hanged to death. So this is when the Scotland Yard sent investigators to Singapore to interview John about the suspected murder of Timothy McDowell. But when John heard why the investigators were there, he was so mad, he flew into a rage and then refused to speak to them. Apparently, he felt betrayed by his defense attorney for allowing the investigators to come and see him and that the attorney was actually kind of like afraid of him suddenly because his reaction was sudden and violent and this is a side of him that the attorney had never seen before. And so unfortunately, Timothy McDowell's family wasn't able to learn about John Martin's side of the story. He, uh, John Martin also declined to seek a pardon from President Ong Teng Chong, which is Singapore's son, uh, which is Singapore's president. And the newspaper quoted Edmund Pereira, which is a defense attorney of John Martin. And Edmund Pereira said that he had received a letter from John Martin during a prison visit last month. Uh, he added, quote, His instruction to us was that he did not want to petition for clemency from the president. It was his wish to let the law take its course. End quote. So in the days before his hanging, Martin wrote a lot of things. And he wrote one where he said that there is an emptiness inside him. And he kind of like lamented that no one had loved him beside his family and his ex-wife, Maria. And his notes were like written down, but he was like misspelling a lot of things. He was semi-literate and dyslexic. So this is what he said in the note, quote, One day poor, one day rich. Money fills the pain of hunger, but what will fill the emptiness inside? I know that love is beyond me, so do I give myself to God? The God that has betrayed me, can I be a person again? Only time will tell me. You may take my life for what it is worth, but grant those that I love peace and happiness. End quote. He also complained that in prison, he was told every day that he is not a member of the human race and he did not like that at all. So now, the week before he was due to hang, he said that he dreamed that he had avoided his sentence, his death sentence, by committing suicide. So this is like a trigger warning. I'm going to say what he has written down in his notes <laughs> and it's not going to be pretty it's like trigger warning suicide thoughts of endings one one's life so just had heads up so quote i tied the rope around my little neck before i got up on the old creaky chair i reached down and picked up a handful of earth and put it in my mouth then i crawled up to the old creaky chair and pulled the rope tighter and tighter still i was on tiptoe just one more pull then my feet left the chair, knocking it over, and darkness embraced me as the heavens opened. I woke up in darkness and felt the heavy weight on my chest. I cried out, Mummy, I'm here. End quote. So, a week before his hanging, there was no formal protest against the hanging. The British government also did not decide to submit a plea for clemency from the Singapore government. So, it definitely looks like his hanging is going to happen. And it did. <clears throat> so 12 hours before John Martin's execution, 
His sister Janet and mother Jean said goodbye to him. So under Singaporean law, they would not be allowed to be present at the hanging. So and also in accordance with Singapore's execution rules, hangings are carried out in private on Friday mornings on a large gallows within the prison and this can accommodate up to seven prisoners. The measured drop method of hanging is used and this is the normal practice in Singapore to hang several prisoners simultaneously although no details of the executions are released to the media. So, John Martin was woken up by guards at about 3.30 a.m. and he was escorted to a waiting room where he and the other two prisoners and these two death row prisoners are two Singaporean drug traffickers and they were prepared. He would have been allowed to speak to a priest in a prison chaplain before the execution. So at dawn, he was given his last meal and apparently his last meal is pizza and hot chocolate. So he was only 36 years old at this time and he was hanged in prison together with the drug traffickers. So on that day, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Royal Thai Police closed their files on the murders of Sheila and Darin Demud, declaring the case effectively solved. So after being left to hang for an hour, the bodies were taken down and released to the families during the morning. At about 10.30 a.m., John Martin's body, wrapped in a white sheet, was taken in an undertaker's van to a funeral parlor where he would be cremated and he was going and his ashes would be taken back to Britain by his mother and sister. So his former wife, Maria Arellanos, learned for the first time that a death sentence has been carried out on the Friday he was ex executed. And she said, quote, John disappeared on several trips and went to the United States and Southeast Asia. I know something awful was happening, but I could not believe he had started killing people. I knew this would happen to John, but I didn't know it would hurt so much. The last memory I have of him is a message he sent promising we would meet in the next life and that he would never let me go again. End quote. So what is the aftermath of this case? So in May 1996, there's a reporter from the Straits Times, Tan Uy Boon, who covered Martin's case from start to finish and they even wrote a book on the case titled Body Parts, A British Serial Killer in Singapore. So he wrote the book in three months using material he had prepared for the newspaper. Although this kind of like mixed fictional narrative with fact, so it's not like completely like fact, straight facts. So in July 1996, John Martin's story and the investigation that followed was featured in an episode of the Singapore Crime Watch. In the episode, the real evidence of the case and actual photographs from the autopsy were shown, causing the series to be the first current affairs program in Singapore to be given the PG warning tag. Police justified their use of the photographs, saying that they wanted to give an accurate account of the case to the public. The story was also reenacted in the last episode of the first season of Mediacorp's Mediacorp TV's Channel 5 docudrama True Files on the 1st of August 2002. And that's the end of the case. That's the end of the Body Parts Killer, the Tourist of Hell case, John Martin Scripps. <clears throat> so I hope you kind of like found it fascinating. As for me, I kind of like 
found it a little fascinating and interesting in terms of him just suddenly killing people for money because he did crimes a lot like you know his drug trafficking his thieving he runs away from jail and all that stuff but what what caused him to just suddenly started killing people and it kind of like it it's primitive it's premeditated yes but it's kind of like it just suddenly happened like he flew to singapore he then just suddenly met jared low and then killed him i don't know i guess he did have like if he did do the timothy mcdowell case and the other cases that were linked to him this might not have been like too abrupt of a jump when it comes to his crimes but if it did say that he did not do the other crimes what made him like motivated to just suddenly kill for money i don't know that's kind of like interesting for me like what is the psychology behind it and all that jazz you know but that's about it for this case i hope you do found it fascinating or at the very least interesting and yep 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 uh, that's about it and so hint 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 on the next episode Ah, oh, it's going to be hard to give the next hint for the next episode because it's multiple stuff. But it's like multiple haunted places in a certain country because apparently I'm using this and I'm using the paranormal episodes as an excuse to just look at different like places in different countries because <laughs> I'm very interested in that. So I'm just going to go and give a hint on what country i would be focusing on i suppose uh and so the hint would be spaghetti <laughs> uh yeah so that's about it that's the hint for it a very very lame and just weird hint for it and so yep there's nothing much else that i could say there's nothing more like housekeeping and all that stuff as i have said in the start of this episode and so i'm just going to go and tell about the social social media accounts and so if you have any stories that you want me to cover or, or if you have any stories that you want to share you could email me at macabramblings at gmail.com i also have instagram where you could dm me there follow me there if you want that to be the place where you share your stuff uh and it's mac macabramblings podcast i also have twitter and it's macarambles which is and, and which is at maca rambles and that's about it always eat good food always keep yourself hydrated always get some rest uh some me time a good break to prevent that bad 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 burnout uh-huh and that and yep stay spooky everybody and always for, don't forget don't don't forget stay safe bye bye